So if you would, if there should be an outline in your bulletin and there are printed messages at all the exits and I'm going to be reading from Genesis chapter 2 verses 18 to 25 and then two verses out of Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 5 there. And uh, next week, um, I'm going to talk to wives mostly, so husbands, make sure your wife is here. I'll talk to her on your behalf, but then you must be here the following week, because I'm going to talk to husbands. And uh, so we need all of this instruction that is in God's inspired word. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, and this is in uh, a retelling of the creation account. It is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. Man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place, and the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to him, to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife And they shall become one flesh. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, I'd like to read verse 31 and 32. Paul quotes the verse we just read, Genesis 2, 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul adds... This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Some of you have made the mistake of buying your children toys that had the rather understated but innocuous words on the box that said, some assembly required. If you're a guy, you probably didn't get out the instructions. You thought, I've got this. And you dug in and started trying to put it together because it's kind of an affront, you know, to our competence to say, I have to really read the instructions? Come on, you know, I can do this. Uh, we'd rather figure it out by ourselves. Well, when it comes to marriage, uh, there's a label on the box that doesn't say some instruction, I mean some assembly required. It says much assembly required. And there are 
instructions that take a lifetime of work to put it together in the right way. I guess that most of us kind of plunged right in thinking, I've got this, you know, I can handle it. And then things got complicated and the uh, project got a little bit uh, mixed up and we got into trouble. And so we need to go back and read and reread and I would say re-re-re-read the instruction manual uh, and often I find the problems that I and others get into in marriage is because we've either failed to read or failed to implement the instructions that God gave us in his word. And so early in Genesis, the book of beginnings, we have this um, passage we read that shows us why God designed marriage. Uh, this description of the original marriage is the basis for almost everything else the entire Bible has to say about the subject. And it gives us many principles that if we will apply them, they will enable us to have not only solid and satisfying marriages, but this is the point, marriages that glorify God, because the chief end of people is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, and I believe that marriage should do that. But these verses teach us that God designed marriage for two main reasons, to meet our need for companionship and to provide a picture of our relationship to him. We could go back to Genesis 1 and add a third reason, to bear children and rear them in the faith, but I'm focusing here on Genesis 2. Uh, the name that is used for God in Genesis 2, the Lord God is the way the New American Standard Bible translates it. When you see Lord in small caps in the New American Standard Bible, it's a translation of the Hebrew Yahweh, which is God's covenant name with his people. It's interesting that in Genesis 1, consistently Moses refers to God as Elohim. And that emphasizes his power as the creator. Uh, but Genesis 2 calls him the Lord God, showing us that this powerful creator who spoke the universe into existence by his word is also the personal God who cares for his people and uh, who ordained marriage. And he knew that the man he created had a need, and so he took action to meet that need. And so the very first thing we need to understand is that God designed marriage to meet the human need for companionship. Now, if we had started at Genesis 1.1 and read right on through to Genesis 2, verse 18 would kind of hit you like a, a shock. Because in Genesis 1, six times over, it says God saw his creation and it was good. And it was good. And it was good. And finally, it was very good uh, at the end of Genesis 1. And so when you get to Genesis 2, it's rather abrupt when it says it is not good for the man to be alone. And just as an aside for all you single guys, that was my verse to pray when I was single. Okay, Lord, you said this in your word. Uh, I'm laying hold of this. Uh, you promised that it is 
said that it's not good, and uh, so I want uh, the one who would be the companion suitable for me. But uh, as, as you think about it, that's a startling statement in the context. What you have here is a sinless man. Adam had not sinned yet. And you have a perfect environment. Creation had not fallen. And the man is in perfect fellowship with God. And yet God himself says it is not good for him to be alone. You would think, well, that's enough, isn't it? I mean, what more do you need? Perfect creation, sinless man, fellowship with God. And God says, no, it's not enough. It's not good. You know, sometimes there are super spiritual people who try to tell you that if you're lonely, you must have a spiritual problem. Well, I think this verse contradicts that. God acknowledges our need not only for fellowship with him, but for a life partner. Now, that's not to say that every person must be married. Uh, All of us, single or married, spend a good part of our lives as single. Uh, Some people never marry, and that's fine. God has called them to be single. And it's not to say that marriage meets all our needs for companionship, in that married people, men need male friends, women need female friends, and that's all legitimate. But it is to say this, that a, a main reason that God designed marriage is that he saw a need in Adam for this wife corresponding to him and for companionship. And so he designed marriage to meet that need. Uh, One of my favorite commentators, Derek Kidner, says, Nothing is yet said of her as a child-bearer. She is valued for herself alone. So first we have to affirm that God designed marriage. That's important. It didn't evolve in human uh, evolution, which of course is a myth. But God designed it so he knows best how it operates or how it should operate. And his word gives us the principles we need to have satisfying marriages. And since God designed marriage, that means it takes more than two to make a marriage. It takes three. God, the man, and the woman. It is significant in light of our times that God did not create another man for Adam. He created a woman. And this whole thing in the last few years of gay marriage uh, is not marriage at all. It's a perversion of marriage. Marriage, as God designed it, is a man and a woman who come together. Anything else is not marriage as God intended it. Also, it is not God's will for a Christian to marry an unbeliever. For marriage, which is difficult in the best of circumstances because we're all sinners, to work, both parties have to be in the Lord. And one of the biggest mistakes you can make as a single person, whether young or looking for a mate later in life, is to think, well, he's a nice person and he will come to church with me and he will come to the Lord. So you enter into an unequal yoke And it just creates all sorts of problems. So run from that. 
marriage has rightly been described as a triangle where God is at the apex, husband and wife are at the two points. The closer they draw to each other, the closer they draw to God. If one or the other mate or both of them draw away from God, they cause distance with each other. And Adam and Eve, you see that in the further story, as soon as they sinned, there was alienation between them. They were ashamed of their nakedness. They covered themselves. And when God confronts Adam, he begins blaming Eve. And I have seen so many marriages that are in the blame game where they are blaming each other for all of the problems in their marriage. And um, so the starting point for a healthy marriage is genuine conversion of both husband and wife and then a daily walk with God where each person is dealing with their own sin before God on the heart level growing in godliness and able to give grace to one another. Now, God says here he'll make Adam a helper suitable for him, and that's not demeaning. That Hebrew word is often used even of God's help for those who are in distress. It's used for military assistance. It points to the fact that a husband needs and even depends on uh, his wife's support and help. Um, we also need to keep in mind Paul's words in 1 Corinthians eleven nine, where he said the man was not created for the woman, for her sake, but the woman for the man's sake. And I believe that that verse alone, and there are many others, but it destroys this other influence that is coming into our churches of feminism where there are no role distinctions uh, everybody is equal in terms of roles and they're interchangeable and all of that. Um, the very fact that God created the woman as a helper points to her subordinate role even in uh, the marriage before the fall. Now, at the same time, let me say there is no basis for the view that men are somehow superior uh, to women. God made the woman to be a helper suitable for, that means corresponding to the man. So it pictures her as the missing part of the man, just like you can't put together a jigsaw puzzle when you got a lot of missing parts. Uh, so the man is incomplete without his wife. And so God designed marriage that the man needs the woman, the woman needs the man, and both are equal persons before God, and yet they have distinct roles. And as we will see in a few minutes, God created man as male and female to reflect his image. And in the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity are equally God, and yet they have different roles and different uh, functions. Um, God made Adam, you'll notice in verse 7 of Genesis 2, out of the dust from the ground. And uh, he didn't make Eve out of the dust. He made Eve out of Adam's rib. And so you have to think about, well, why is that? Why didn't he just create Eve out of the dust? I think he did it to show Adam that his wife was a part of him. Uh, she was a part of his flesh. She was equal with him. She was not a lower creation as the animals are. 
And in Ephesians 5, Paul says, A man should nourish and cherish his wife, even as his own body. She is one flesh with him. And so there is that equality and care. It's often been said that God did not take uh, Eve out of Adam's head to rule over him, and he did not take her out of his feet that he would dominate her or put her down, but she was taken from his side so that he would protect her and keep her close to his heart. Another question you have to ask as you read Genesis 1 and 2 is, why didn't God create the man and the woman simultaneously? Um, Before God created Eve, he puts Adam through this, seems kind of out of context when you're reading the account, this strange exercise of naming the animals. And again, as you read that text, you have to ask, why does God do that? Well, why does Adam have to name all the animals and then God brings Eve to him? Uh, I think God is teaching Adam a lesson. He starts naming the animals, and I realize he wasn't speaking English, but um, maybe starts with aardvark, which begins with AA and ends with zebra. And uh, he starts to notice a pattern. Male, female, male, female. And he goes down the list, and then he thinks, where's mine? And in the text, there's this kind of forlorn note at the end of verse 20. It says, but for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. And so God makes Adam feel the need for a wife before he supplies the wife. And, you know, they say a dog is a man's best friend, but Adam had dogs, I'm sure. And he still felt this need. Where's mine? You know, where is my wife? And, you know, sometimes God takes us through a period of loneliness to prepare us for his blessing of a spouse, whether you're male or female. I uh, began to feel the need to be married when I was about 20, and I was just a week shy of my 27th birthday when Marla and I got married. And uh, I had been through several failed romances, and suffice it to say, I was really feeling the need by the time we got married But that makes me appreciate Marla. There's hardly a day goes by that I just don't thank the Lord for giving her to me. And part of the reason I appreciate her is I remember how lonely I was before. And so God does that with us. Um, And what that means is this. You, You need to realize that God joined you and your mate together. You say, oh boy, really? We're having troubles. Yeah, he did. He gave her or him to you, and uh, he, they are your gift, he, his gift to you, so you have to thank him, maybe by faith, but thank him for your mate and uh, begin to appreciate um, the fact that he brought you together. Now, this account of the first marriage also plainly teaches that God designed marriage to include sex in marriage. And I realize that's a sensitive subject, but there are many Christians who have unbiblical notions about the sexual relationship in even in marriage. I, some people think, I guess, it was the original sin or something, but I read a story about 
a pastor who announced to his congregation that he and his wife were going to adopt their first child, a son, and a dear old lady in the church came up to him and said, I think that's just wonderful. That's how every pastor should have his children. Uh, Apparently she thought that abstinence was uh, the higher calling or something. But, you know, when you think through this creation of Eve, the, the text might surprise you here. In the first place, it says God fashioned a woman from the man's rib. And in the New American Standard Bible, in the margin, <clears throat> you'll see that it says built. And the picture is a sculptor who's trying to build a beautiful uh, work of art. And uh, I hope you don't think I'm too crude, but I'm going to say that since she was built by God, you could say Eve was well built. Uh, She was a specimen. And I not only say that because God built her, but I say that because of Adam's response. Um, Adam wasn't lying asleep. And he woke up, and there's Eve lying beside him. God put him to sleep, did the surgery, took his rib, sewed it up. Adam wakes up, and I think the Lord said something like, "Uh, Adam, uh, you forgot to name one creature. Here she is. And he marches Eve into Adam's view, and she's not wearing a wedding dress. She's naked. And Adam probably went, Wow, in fact, the Hebrew here is rather understated. Uh, This is now bone of my bone. That sounds kind of intellectual, you know. Um, A more literal rendering would be Yahoo. Uh, And I'm not basing that on my authority. Um, There are a couple of stodgy old German commentators from the Victorian era named Kyle and Delich. And they are authorities on the Old Testament. And they translate it, this time. And uh, they say it's expressive of joyous astonishment. And then some other Victorian commentators, Jameson Fawcett Brown, say it's emphatic. Now, at last. Or they say it could be translated, this is the very thing that hits the mark. This, is what re- this reaches what was desired. So remember, again, Adam has looked from aardvark to zebra through all of the animals looking for his. He doesn't find her. And now God brings Eve to him, and he's going, Eureka, praise the Lord, here she is. This is the one meant for me. And then Adam finishes his work of naming uh, the creatures. He says Eve is a part of him. Verse 23, so he says, She shall be called woman in Hebrew, Isha, because she was taken out of the man, which in Hebrew is Ish. And so God brings Eve to Adam as his exquisitely crafted gift to him, perfect for his deepest need. Now that teaches us something very important about God. He is not trying to take our fun away by his rules about sex. God designed it for in the marriage relationship. Taken out of that relationship, it doesn't bring lasting pleasure and joy. It brings a lot of pain and grief. Satan, from day one, has tried to malign God. Has God said, oh, God knows that if you eat of this fruit, you'll be like him. He's trying to take your fun away. 
And so he lies about God to bring down the goodness of God. When you're going through trials, Satan comes and says, if your God is so good, why this trial? He's always maligning the goodness of God. And he does that in the sexual realm. When you're single and you're lonely and there's a willing partner, not your mate, hey, this would be good for you. God doesn't know what's best. And so you have to resist the lie of the devil there and say, wait a minute, God designed sex. It's a good thing in its context of a covenant, committed, lifelong marriage. Taken out of that context, it's the lie of the enemy that it's for your good. It is not. It is destructive. And so... In the context of marriage, we can thank God. He designed it, including the sexual relationship. The second thing we need to see then is that God designed marriage to meet our need for companionship. When you get to verse 24, it is not Adam speaking. He didn't have a father and mother to leave. It is Moses' commentary on what's going on. For this reason... A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so it's Moses' commentary here. For this reason means because of the way God designed marriage, um, because the woman is bone of man's bone, flesh of his flesh, uh, then these things hold true. And he shows that to fulfill the need for companionship, marriage has to have four things true of it. It must be a primary, permanent, uh, exclusive, and intimate relationship. First of all, companionship requires that marriage be a primary relationship. God did not create a father and mother for Adam. Uh, He did not create a child for Adam. He did not create another man for Adam. He created a woman, his wife. And it says that we must leave father and mother to cleave to a wife so that the two become one flesh. And that means that the marriage relationship is primary, not the parent-child relationship. The parent-child relationship um, has to be altered before the marriage relationship can rightly be established. You have to leave. That doesn't mean abandoning your parents. Uh, It doesn't mean cutting off contact with them, but it does mean you have to have enough emotional maturity to leave that relationship and establish a new primary relationship with your mate. And parents need to raise their children with a view to releasing them. That's hard for a lot of parents, but that's what you're doing. You got about 18 to 20 years to get them ready and send them out. And hopefully by then they're mature enough to be joined to another. Also what this means is if you're building your marriage around your children, you're heading for a a train wreck. A lot of people do this. Uh, Usually the wife, she's home with the kids a lot of times. These days I know a lot of wives work, but 
she's the one who bore the children and she's attached to them. And so she's, her life is centered on those kids. The husband, more often than not, gets tied up with his career. It's demanding. He's working long hours trying to provide and all of that. And so suddenly the nest empties. And the couple realizes they've drifted in their relationship. She's left empty because the kids are gone and she's devastated. And uh, he's kind of going, well, what's, what's the problem here? And that's, if you see the curve on divorce, it goes high right after marriage and then it goes down and then it goes high again when the nest empties. And that's at the heart of it. And so the best way you can be a good parent to your children, men, is love their mother. And the best way, women, you can be a good mom to your kids is love their father. That is primary. Uh, The second thing we see here is that companionship requires that a marriage be a permanent relationship, and that follows from it being primary. Um, Your kids are in your home for a few years, but your partner is or should be with you for life. Uh, The word join to means to cling to, to hold to uh, something as bone to skin, or it also means to be glued to something. And so that means when you get married, you're stuck, okay, in a good sense, I hope. But it should be a permanent relationship. Jesus quoted Genesis 2.24 in uh, Matthew 19, and then he added these words, verse 6, What therefore... God has joined together, let no man, and that's generic, no person, separate. And so what that means is this. The marriage relationship has to be built on covenant commitment. You're entering into a lifelong covenant. Romantic love is important, and I still try to keep that flame going, but The marriage isn't built on romantic love. The marriage is built on covenant commitment. And you have to have that because your marriage will go through difficult times. We're all sinners, as I said, and we all tend to clash. What holds you together during those times is, I made a covenant commitment to this person before God. And we will work it through. And that means... A Christian couple should never use the threat of divorce when you're in a conflict. It's not leverage. No, put that out of your vocabulary. I am committed to you, and I know we're having trouble, but we're going to work this through. Let's talk about it and work it through. Divorce mars the picture of Christ's eternal covenant love for his church. And as we'll see in a moment, your marriage is to reflect Christ in the church. Christ doesn't divorce his church, thankfully. He's got plenty of reasons to, doesn't he? But he sticks with us. And we are to have that commitment as well. Your wife or husband is your companion by covenant. So marriage is primary. Marriage is permanent. Companionship also requires that marriage be an exclusive relationship it says to his he should be joined to his wife not to his wives and i believe that monogamy is god's original design in the old testament god 
tolerated polygamy. I don't think it's ever pictured as a good thing. There's not a single polygamous marriage in the Old Testament that is happy or good. Uh, There are problems in all of those marriages. And God could have created many wives for Adam. He created one wife for Adam. And that's his design. One man, one woman together for life. That means when you get married, men, you give up close friendships with other women. Women, when you get married, you give up close friendships with other men. Now, I know there are liberated couples who say, well, that's old-fashioned. We have the right to have you know, opposite-sex friends. That is flirting with danger, given the flesh. It's just dangerous. And your mate becomes your best friend. Now, of course, men can have men friends, women, women friends. But even then, you really give up your right to go out with the guys whenever you choose when you get married. Your wife becomes your primary relationship there and the exclusive relationship. And she's your first priority in terms of human relationships. Sure, we can have guy friends, guys, and women can have women friends. But what I'm saying is if you're not ready to say, my wife is going to be my primary exclusive relationship, you're not ready for marriage. That should be it. So it's primary, it's permanent, it's exclusive. And then finally, companionship requires that marriage be an intimate relationship. Verse 24 again, they shall become one flesh. One flesh. Uh, That's emphasizing the sexual relationship in marriage. But the sexual union is always more than just physical. It's a total person oneness that takes place. And uh, it's built on relational and emotional oneness. And unless there's a physiological problem, almost all sexual problems in a marriage relationship can be traced back to relational problems. There's not that interpersonal closeness between a husband and wife. And so sexual harmony has to be built on the foundation of a primary, permanent, exclusive relationship that is growing in trust, growing in communication, growing in total oneness. I believe God made us that way. Now, if you take the sexual relationship outside of marriage it does create a temporary sense of closeness. And I believe the New Testament teaches that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.16 that even when a man has sex with a prostitute, he becomes one flesh with her. It's a startling statement. Just a one-time thing, but he became one flesh with her. So there's this superficial sense of oneness, but it never lasts, and it never is going to bring the kind of satisfaction that that uh, can bring in a committed marriage. And sin always hinders closeness or intimacy in a marriage, as it did with Adam and Eve. They sinned. They immediately recognized their nakedness. They began to hide from one another with their fig leaves, 
um, and uh, they were alienated from God and from one another. Adam began to blame Eve, and so it has happened ever since. And so to grow in closeness in your marriage, rather than blaming your mate, you've got to blame yourself. Look to your own heart, begin to judge your own sin, and acknowledge that to God and to your mate. And as you grow in personal closeness to God and holiness, you will grow in closeness to your mate, as I explained earlier. But it takes constant work. And a good marriage isn't, boy, you were lucky to find that great person. Um, It's a matter of work. Both partners walk with God daily and uh, fight the spiritual fight. And as a result, they grow together in intimacy. Now, God, though, didn't design marriage simply that we would be happy and have our needs met. I believe he designed marriage for a greater purpose, and that is that we would bear witness through our marriages of what it means to know God through Jesus Christ. And so the second main reason in our text, God designed marriage, is to provide a picture of our relationship with him. Um. In the Old and the New Testament, marriage is often compared to God's relationship with his people. And in Ephesians 5.32, after Paul talks about marriage, and then he quotes Genesis 2.24, in 5.32, Paul says, This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And when you read Ephesians 5 in the context there, that verse kind of hits you like, really? I thought he was talking about marriage. And what Paul is saying is that marriage should be an earthly picture of the relationship of Christ and his church. And we are the bride of Christ. And in Revelation 19, there will be the great marriage supper of the Lamb where we will be uh, his bride forever. In the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, but it's in the New as well, when a man consummates a marriage, it says he knew his wife. He knew her is the language used. And it's more than a euphemism because we can know God through Jesus Christ. So there's that intimate knowledge. Also, as we've seen, a husband and wife are one flesh. In the New Testament, Paul says, if you know the Lord, you're one spirit with him. You were joined together with him in that intimate relationship. In the New Testament, the church is to be subject to Christ, even uh, as the wife is to be subject to her husband as a picture of that relationship. Also, in the New Testament, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, husbands are to sacrificially love their wives even as their own bodies and give themselves up for her. In a marital union, uh, there should be children, whether adopted or through procreation, but the union of Christ and his church should result in many people being adopted into God's family through the new birth, uh, born into God's family through the new birth, or adopted as they come to faith in Christ. Someone has described marriage as God doing with um, one man and one woman that which he purposes to do with the whole world. And that's why it's so important 
for you to work at your marriage because you're painting a portrait and the world is watching. And that portrait should say to them, this is about something greater than us. If anyone compliments you on the good relationship you have with your mate, uh, God's glory is at stake there. Use it for witness to say, well, I have something greater to tell you about. And that is Jesus Christ wants to be in an intimate, personal relationship with you. Um, The essence of Christianity, I hope you know, is not rituals. It's not a bunch of rules. It's a relationship. And if you've never done so, you, you need to lay aside the fig leaves of your good works and let God provide for you a lamb. That's what he did with Adam and Eve. He said the fig leaves won't cut it, guys, and he slaughtered an animal and clothed them with animal skin. And it's a picture. Jesus, the Lamb of God, came to take away your sin. And you have to put your trust in him and enter a personal relationship with Christ. It's more than joining a church. It's more than saying, all right, I'll be moral. Uh, It's a relationship with the living person, the risen Lord Jesus, and you enter that relationship by coming to him and acknowledging, yeah, my fig leaves won't do. I am a sinner, and I'll accept your provision for me. Christ died for our sins on the cross. Now, to wrap it up here this morning regarding marriage, if you're single and you're content to be single, then God's word to you is use your single state to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord and service to him and his work. If you're here this morning and you're single, but you really desire to be married, it's to make you a person of prayer. And so get on your knees and begin claiming Genesis 2, 18. It is not good for the man or the woman to be alone. And Lord, you know my need. But as I'm going to tell you when I talk to the singles, You've got to be the kind of person, the kind of person you want to marry would want to marry. In other words, I meet a lot of singles. Oh, I want a godly wife. But they're looking at porn. Godly wife doesn't want to marry a guy looking at porn. She wants to marry a godly guy. So if you want a godly wife, you've got to grow in godliness yourself. And then pray for a godly wife or vice versa, a husband. But your lifelong marriage has to be centered on God so that it gives the world a picture. This is Christ. This is the church. If you're married, then I believe the word of God to you is grow deeper in your covenant companionship with your mate. Um, Both husbands and wives should grow in sacrificial love, but husbands taking the lead so that your marriage reflects Christ and the church to this world we live in where everybody's seeking self and self is at the heart of everything and marriage is a 50-50 agreement where we both negotiate and get our own way and all of that garbage. No, no, no. Marriage should reflect Christ's sacrificial love for his bride and her loving response to him. That's God's intent. And it's a lifelong process, but I'm here to say if that doesn't reflect the direction of your marriage, then you've got one of those flashing lights on the dashboard of your marriage saying, there's a problem under the hood. 
And for the sake of the testimony of Christ, as well as your own happiness, pull over to the side of the road and figure out what's wrong and, by God's grace, begin to fix it. Let me pray with us. Dear Lord, you know all our hearts. You know all our sins, all our failures, all the ways that we fall short, and yet your love overcomes. Thank you for the many promises that we cannot be cut off from Christ if we have been born again, that we are your children by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's your gift. I pray if any are here who have never received the gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus, your Holy Spirit would work in their heart right now, that they would trust in him. And Father, I'm sure there are some difficult, troubled marriages represented here, and I'm asking you for grace and wisdom and strength, perseverance, and that you would be exalted in those situations by bringing deeper repentance, deeper dependence on you in prayer, uh, genuine conversion where needed, perhaps on the part of one of the mates, but that you would be glorified in our homes and that our children would rise up and call us blessed because they saw an example of Christ-like love in our homes. For those who have failed, I pray for grace and mercy and that they would know your forgiveness. I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in and through this church in spite of our many shortcomings. And we long for that day when we will be joined to you forever as your bride. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to conclude this morning.